and this was sitting in my chair. Both of the other pastors get to go away for three weeks, and this is what I get. But honestly, I'm, I'm feeling like I got a good end of the stick because I'm channeling my inner Zulu right now. You can come give me a hug. Come here. Gonna, come on. Come on. Leave that on. Don't cause people to stumble. <laughs> oh, this is good to see you. I miss you, Ivory. <laughs> I know. I know. And the, the best part, this is an extra large. And I'm like, oh, don't exhale. Don't exhale. So um, last week we finished up our series going through the book of Philippians. And next weekend we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate what God did over in Africa. Um, and then we're going to start a new series, which means that this is one of those wild card weekends where it's pastor's choice. Um, and so I just want to invite you into a conversation, something that I've been wrestling with for a while. And it's something we've talked about before. But really it comes down to this. There are hurting people all over the place. Our next door neighbors, at the gym, in our workplaces, at our kids' schools. You know, when, when we go to the supermarket, they're hurting people that you would never know that they were hurting if you never really got to know them. And we, the church, are called to minister to them. We're called to reach them with the hope that comes from Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to be something we'll return to at the end here. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus reminds us, hey... Or Paul reminds us that through Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. And not only have we been made new creations, but he has given us the ministry of reconciliation as if God himself were making his appeal to a hurting and broken world through us. We have the opportunity to be ministers of reconciliation. Can we bring me down just a little bit? Thank you. Um, but the question becomes, are we doing it? Are we actually connecting with people? Are people able to come face to face with the living God? If Lighthouse ceased to exist today, would our community even notice or would they care? Those are the questions that as a pastor I'm wrestling with. And so what I want to do today is talk about how, what our posture is towards the world that would, that's not coming to church, towards the people who aren't stepping foot in the church. How are we reaching them? And for that, towards that end, I want to give two definitions of two words for us. Some of you are going to be familiar with them, but these are words that kind of are used to define the posture that the church traditionally takes. One posture is called the, an attractional church. Attractional. The attractional church, and these are going to be broad generalizations. I'm painting with a very broad brush. But attractional churches do exactly that. They seek to attract people who are on the outside, people who are hurting, to attract them into the walls of the church where the professional ministers are there, but also where the programs are there to care for their needs. Attractional churches typically have a language of their own. We call it Christianese. And people who come into the church need to learn that language before they can really fully participate. Additionally, Attractional churches tend to focus on differences. When somebody new comes in, it becomes very evident very quickly where they're different and there's a, a pressure for them to conform in some ways before they can be fully accepted or they're just going to go to a different church to find that fit where they do fit in. Finally, and probably most importantly, these attractional type of churches, because they're a little institutional, because they're established, they tend to focus 
on just a few people doing the, the majority of the work while the, majority, while the vast majority of people tend to sit passively. I will admit to you, I, I really don't like the fact that there's only one person or a couple people that get up on a Sunday and share. This is the traditional type of posture of church. And if this is it, then in a lot of ways what we're saying is there is a professional group of ministers that does the ministry. Your job is simply to get people into church where then the professional ministers can care for them, where they can heal them, where they can introduce them to Jesus and all those kind of things. That is one posture that the church takes. On the flip side, you have a missional type of church. That's a different posture. And again, these are broad generalizations. But a missional type of church says rather than expecting those on the outside who are hurting to come here to get help, we need to go to them. We need to meet them on their turf as opposed to expecting them to come onto our turf. Because we're going to them, because we're trying to connect with them, we need to speak in a language that they understand. So we've got to avoid Christianese as much as possible. We need to speak their language. Furthermore, rather than focusing on differences, expecting them to conform to be more like us before we will interact and really be close with them, what we want to do is we want to find areas of commonality. We want to find places where our lives overlap a little bit so that we can begin a conversation, so that we can have friendship. Will life transformation take place? God willing. But that's not where we start. We want to find places where we can connect. And then finally, and most importantly, missional type churches recognize the cry of Ephesians chapter 4. We looked at this when we studied the book of Ephesians. That there are some prophets, pastors, apostles, teachers who are there to equip the people of God to be ministers. And I'm paraphrasing this. But we are all ministers. Every single one of us that calls Jesus Christ Lord is a minister of the gospel. We are all entrusted with the opportunity to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Not just a couple professional ministers. So then the job of the the pastors, the job of the teachers is really to equip you to go and be the church in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your kids' schools, at the supermarket, as, as Egypt was just saying. You know, The mission field isn't just in Africa. The mission field is right outside these walls. And the missional church, the posture of the missional church is we can't stay here. We are called the salt of the earth, but that if the salt never leaves the salt shaker, what the heck good is it? We are called the light of the, you know, but if the light never leaves the light bulb, you might as well throw the thing out because it's useless. So what is the point? And again, what I'm talking about here is our approach to the outside. Now, there are very, very good reasons why we gather on Sundays. There are very good reasons why we continue to perpetuate Lighthouse Church. We're not talking about caring for our own needs. We're talking about reaching the people who are hurting that would never step foot in church. Well, if, if we step back and go, well, what was Jesus' posture on this whole thing? I think we'd very quickly recognize that he lived a life that was missional through and through. Rather than kind of standing back expecting people to come to him, although they did because people were radically attracted to him. And he would, he would try to get a way to get some quiet time and there would be 5,000 people there like clamoring for him. But at the same time, Jesus lived a life where he was constantly moving towards people. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at 
two small vignettes of, of Jesus' interaction just to kind of give an example of the ways that he moved towards the hurting, towards the disenfranchised, towards the marginalized. In Ephesians chapter 5, um, he's just invited a group of fishermen, guys who you would never expect to be disciples of anybody. The guys who were the rejects, who had been sent back because they didn't quite cut it. And he chose a few fishermen to come and be his disciples. He says, come with me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, he comes into contact with another guy that most Jewish religious leaders would never interact with. We read, when Jesus was in one of the towns, this is verse 12 of chapter 5, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, we've talked about leprosy before. It was one of those things that to the Jewish mindset, it was the punishment of God. So obviously somebody has done something wrong to, to have leprosy come upon them. That was the mindset. And lepers were considered unclean. And whatever they touched became unclean. And if you touched them, you became ceremonially unclean, which means that you would have to go through a whole ritualistic purification process before you could go back into the temple to worship God. It was a big deal. Because of their uncleanliness, both they believed, you know, uh, internally but also physically lepers were ostracized they were pushed out they had to live beyond the boundaries of the cities lepers could obviously not get a job because anything they touched became unclean so they were either had to beg or steal to eat and whenever they did walk into the city to go and beg for food they, they were completely covered and they would have to cry out unclean unclean everywhere they went so that other people could get on the other side of the road so they would never have to come into contact with them this is this guy's life he is ostracized he's marginalized you can imagine the effect that it would have on his psyche on the way that he viewed himself i am a leper that was his identity well, while Jesus was one of the towns, a man came along who was covered in leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Do you hear the desperation in that? Please, I just, I, wa I want to have a normal life. I don't want this to define me anymore. I want relationship. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, Jesus has healed a lot of people, but one of the reasons why this is my, one of my favorite, if not my favorite moment in Jesus's ministry is because of his choice of how he heals him. Think about this. Jesus has healed a ton of people simply by going, hey, your sins are forgiven or you're healed. Stand up, take your mat and walk. And they do it. He didn't have to touch this guy, but he chose to. He chose to go against hundreds and hundreds of years of training the, to the Jewish mindset that said, you do not touch a leper, it makes you unclean. And he reached out and he touched him. Now I can imagine his words, be clean. And the fact that this man's leprosy disappeared, I can imagine that that had a very healing impact. But can you imagine what it did to his soul? To have this man, Jesus, who some people are going, could this be the expected Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer? Having him reach out and touch him had such a humanizing effect on him because it said, listen, you are not the sum total of your greatest affliction. 
You matter. You are a child of God. That touch probably did just as much as the taking of the leprosy. Go down to verse 27. Because after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. We've talked about tax collectors too. This is a day and age where Israel, the nation, is occupied by Rome. Rome is a, a, an oppressive occupying force that is stationed, uh, you know, guards all over the place. They have a military presence and they have taken Israel captive in a lot of ways. Well, how do they pay for their, the, the captivators, the, the, the guards? They tax the people. So now Israel literally is paying taxes to have to support the oppressors. But the people that they hated even more than the Roman legionnaires who had the ability to take their life at any moment were the Israelites, the Jews, who themselves said, hey, rather than trying to fight against Rome, I'm going to join Rome and I'm going to collect the very taxes that they're imposing on you. And I'm going to take money from my fellow countrymen and I'm going to give it to Rome. But not only that, but the way that the, uh, the tax collectors got their money is that they could tax people over and above what Rome expected. And anything that they collected more than they were expected to collect, they kept. So not only are they traitors supporting the oppressor, but they're stealing from their fellow countrymen, which is why in the hierarchy of, of, of Israelite community, the tax collectors were at the very bottom below prostitutes, below lepers, below sinners. They are the lowest of the low because they're traitors. So Jesus comes along a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. And what does he say to him? Follow me. The same invitation he's just given to a bunch of fishermen. Follow me. The same invitation that he gives to this rich young ruler. Follow me. Come. Be a disciple of mine. And Levi, whose name will later be changed to Matthew, the same guy who wrote the first gospel that we have, the gospel of Matthew, got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors. So now not just one, but tons of tax collectors are showing up and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, standing back with their arms crossed and they complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why on earth would you interact with them? Why would you go over to a tax collector's house and even be associated with them? You should have nothing to do with them. And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, throughout his ministry, was constantly bucking the religious trend to get insular and to hide from the world. He was accused by the Pharisees of being a drunkard and a glutton because he would eat and drink with the hurting, with the people who were sick but didn't even realize it, the people who were most desperate for restoration, but many of which didn't know it. And he was willing to go to them, meet them on their turf, and minister to them in their brokenness. He loved them in the midst of their brokenness. And this heartbeat, this missional heartbeat of moving towards people as opposed to expecting them to come to him got passed down to his disciples. And, and, and then they, these disciples modeled it for the next generation. 
And we see the disciples being very missional in the way that they cared for people. We, we know this because there's a sociologist, a guy named Rodney Stark, who a couple years ago, more like a decade now, um, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity in which he tried to, to understand what was it that, that took this little movement started by you know, a, a, a Jewish carpenter and his ragtag group of misfits. And how did it grow into the single most influential movement in all of human history has changed the face of the earth? How did that happen? And one of the things that he found is that there were certain peaks, there were certain high points in in people coming into the church. New converts. New people saying, I'm in, I'm following Jesus Christ. And they corresponded perfectly with moments of plague that hit the Roman Empire. And one of the things that he discovered as he began to lean into that and go, what's going on here? Is that when, when plagues hit in these urban areas, people in those cities would scatter. They would leave the cities, get as far away from it as possible. Furthermore, if you had a family member that got sick, in your mind, they're as good as dead. And so people would literally kick their parents, kick their children out of the house and say, you are no longer living to us. To us, you're dead. But if we keep you, we'll be dead too. So the most loving thing we can do is get rid of you. And whereas the world began to to move away from the sick, at the same time the Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ began during these seasons of plague to move into the cities. They would walk the streets and when they saw somebody who was sick on the ground who had been kicked out of their home, they would take them to their home. And they would begin to nurse him back to health. Now this didn't come without a cost. Because many of the Christian ministers who were caring for them got sick themselves and some of them died. But the effects were radical. Because you're caring for somebody with the love that you've received received from Jesus Christ. They're watching you live out your faith. Recognizing, hey, this life isn't all there is. So if I get sick and die, that's fine. Because... This pestilence, my death doesn't get the last word. I have eternity to look forward to. And in the process of caring for them, they modeled for them what Jesus said, hey, the world will know you're my disciples by what? The way you love one another. And so people who would never step foot into church are being cared for. They get healthy. And they discover Jesus Christ through the love that a complete stranger has for them. And then they themselves become ministers on the front lines because now they're immune to the pestilence. They can go and they can, they can care for others. And you see the church begin to grow in droves because the Christians loved. And so we see the, 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 this movement begin to grow and swell. And then something really interesting happened in 313 AD. A little less than 300 years after Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. There was an emperor of Rome. His name was Constantine. And Constantine got sick and almost died. And he believes that Jesus Christ saved his life. And so he he converted to Christianity. But the interesting thing was at this point, Christianity was illegal in Rome, in the Roman Empire. The reason it was illegal is because Rome believed that the, the emperor was God. He was the only God worth worshiping. Well, suddenly the emperor has converted and believes in Jesus Christ. And so he kind of steps back and he goes, 
I am going to make Christianity legal so that people no longer have to fear persecution and even sometimes execution for believing in Jesus Christ. And so he signs the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, which legalized all religion. You now had the freedom to choose. 67 years later, in 380 AD, there was another edict, the Edict of Thessalonica, that, that made Christianity not only legal, but now the official religion of all of the Holy Roman Empire. Yay God, right? Big deal. This is, now the church is going to expand, and in a lot of ways it expanded tremendously. But there were some negative repercussions that this had. The first one is that it lowered the bar tremendously on what it meant to be a Christ follower. Because up to this point, if you say, if you're entertaining the thought of coming to know Jesus Christ and accepting him as your Lord, there's a huge cost involved. I could, I'm very well going to be persecuted. I could be ostracized from my family. I might even be killed for my faith. Am I willing to go through with it? Okay. You know that person is committed. But now suddenly the script is flipped and it's actually more costly not to be a Christ follower or at least not to carry the name of Christian than it is to just be a Christian. And so now instead of people having to choose to follow Christ, they're almost born into it and they just accept it because it's the easiest way to go. And in the process, the church just gets watered down with people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, maybe accept him as their savior, but never allow him to be the Lord of their life. Furthermore, and probably the second and the greatest impact that this had on the church was that prior to this, it wasn't about a building. When we talked about the Christian church, we're talking about a community of believers who are, who are journeying together, who are caring for people. They're all ministers, right? But once it's legalized and then ratified as the official religion... Once Christianity becomes kind of the civic and social center of everything, there's a massive building program and the buildings become synonymous with the church because you'd have these little rural towns that would erect a giant cathedral. If you, any of you have read or watched the, the movie, um, The Pillars of the Earth, it's about the effect that one of these cathedrals in a small town had. They were massive buildings, secular, or I'm sorry, sacred space in the midst of a secular town. And the church grew in power, it grew in influence, it grew in monetary wealth. People began to think of the, of the church as being the building. And they began to think that this is where I go to meet God. And the churches became the civic and social centers of everything. They basically had a monopoly on, on the social life of the towns because they, had, they were the biggest thing there. There was no Sunday morning football, you know? If people were hurting, if people needed help, the church was where they went. There were no social services. The church was the social services. Furthermore, because the church is starting to grow in power, there became this hierarchical growth. Whereas the Christians used to all be ministers and all cared for the people in their neighborhood, suddenly, now you have professional ministers cropping up. You've got pastors. I'm sorry. You've got um, priests and bishops, and cardinals, and the Pope. And this hierarchical thing begins to tell people, we are the professional ministers, we are the ones on the front lines doing the ministry, your job is simply to continue to support our efforts. 
and this passivity begins to enter into the church. And the church, because it's now the center of civic and social life, the church switches from being missional in mindset, saying we will go meet anybody who's hurting on their ground, on their turf, and speak in such a way that they understand, hey, we've got a monopoly on this. Let them come to us. Now, that was never probably the mindset, but that certainly became the heartbeat. They come to us to be cared for. And we switch from missional to attractional. Allow them to come to us to be cared for. With the rise of Christendom, this Christian kingdom, attractional church reigns. And it actually sufficed because it was the only thing going. But fast forward now about 16, 1700 years, and now we're in the 21st century. The church is no longer the only thing going. We're no longer the center of civic and social life. In a lot of ways, we're becoming more and more marginalized, pushed to the side. We ha- people who are hurting have an infinite amount of options. I'm hurting? I go to a doctor. Oh, it's more emotional? I go to a, a counselor. Maybe I go see a, a psychiatrist. They can give me some pills. Oh, it's more legal issues? I'm just going to go to an attorney. We're just going to dissolve this thing because I'm over it. You know, this, is, this isn't what I signed up for. Or I'm just going to drown my pain. Honestly, I've got video games, I've got, I've got bars, I've got alcohol, I've got any infinite number of things. I've got television, I've got shopping, I can do anything to drown this pain, I don't even have to feel it. And so we still have a world full of hurting, broken people right outside the walls of this church. And yet, their first inclination when they really come face to face with their pain is not, I need to go to church. That's not their first thought. And yet the church, by and large, and I know I'm grossly generalizing here, but the church, by and large, has maintained this attractional model where if people are hurting, all we need to do is get them in the church. <clears throat> all we need to do is invite them here, and then the professional ministers, Lee, Eric, Egypt, maybe some of these super volunteers, they can help them find Jesus. They can help their brokenness. We've kind of missed the point, haven't we? Maybe it's time in the 21st century that we begin to examine our posture towards the hurting and the broken outside the walls of this church. Maybe it's time to recognize that every single one of us is a minister. Not, there's not just a professional class of us that do all the ministry while all of you, your job is simply to sit there and support us financially. That's garbage. We're completely missing the point. And if I or Lee or Egypt or if any of us have given you that impression, then I repent of that. You are, every single one of you is a minister of reconciliation. And God can use any and every single one of you to be an ambassador of reconciliation in your sphere of influence. To your neighbors, in your workplace in your schools or your kids' schools, at the gym that you go to. But we need to change our perspective. And we need to stop thinking that the answer is simply get them in the church and then they'll be fine. Now, there is definitely a reason why we gather. And there is absolutely a reason for us meeting on Sundays and hopefully they will find community. But that's not where we start. And that can't be our initial posture. Our initial posture is we need to meet them where they are at, on their turf, speak in such a way that they can understand, find points of commonality, 
and walk with them in their brokenness. Love them in the midst of their junk, just like Jesus did. To reach out to the ostracized. To love the marginalized and love them back into the kingdom of God. Introduce them to Jesus through the way that he has loved us to love them. And I could, I could probably give you lots of examples, but I want to invite, I want to, uh, to introduce you to somebody who recognized this call to be an ambassador of reconciliation on the front lines of caring for people where they're at on their turf. Because the reality is the particular demographic that God broke his heart for isn't likely to ever step foot into church. That wouldn't be their first inclination at least. So Sean, where are you at? There you are. Come on up here. Sean is the... This is Sean Dunn. Welcome him. Please. Hey, brother. And actually, I just met Sean this morning, but I know that Doug and, and several others of you are, are well aware of this ministry and have been aligned with them for a while. Sean is the founder of an organization called Groundwire. It's a ministry that... I'm not even going to try to explain it. I'll let you explain it because I would massacre it. Are we on here? Thanks, man. Um, it is such a privilege to be here. Uh, Doug and Heather have been friends for a long time. I've gotten to know uh, your pastoral staff, the last one. I, I don't know if there's somebody hiding, but uh, if Eric is the lowest man on the on the, the rung, I met him today. So, But uh, Pastor Egypt and I, uh, we share a heartbeat. But here's, here's just to kind of say how much this resonates with me. I was living a very attractional ministry model. I've been in full-time ministry since I was 18 years old. And my model of ministry was an invitation. I was inviting people, specifically young people, youth and young adults, to come where I was. And if they would come to my church, my camp, my conference, read one of my books, be somewhere where I was speaking, I could share truth with them out of the Word of God that would change them for all of eternity. Because the Word of God is life transformational. Amen? If it's not, what are we doing here? But several years ago in 2002, God kind of confronted me and I realized the Bible says go. And I said, God, I, I don't know if I've ever gone. I've gone to Africa and I've gone to the Caribbean and I've gone, but I've never crossed the cultural barrier that exists between Christianity and the secular world in our country right now. And I began to ask the question, how do we reach the ones that don't want to be reached? How do we reach the ones that will never walk into our church? How do we reach the ones that will never come to the Christian concert? How do we reach those young people? And those? And, and I became burdened and I began to pray, recognizing my insufficiency. And I began to ask, ask this way. I said, God, you're a creative genius and I'm an idiot. You know how to do this and I don't. And I really just became obsessed with the opportunities. And not only the opportunities, please catch this, the opportunity, but the responsibility that we as Christ followers have to take the gospel into the highways and the byways, to go, do you agree with me? We have a responsibility. God has commissioned us. That passage that you're talking about, I love Second Corinthians 5. One of my favorite chapters. So much stuff in there. You could preach weeks on that, that chapter. Second uh, Corinthians 5.11 says this, Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we will try to persuade men. Sometimes we as churches water it down. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we'll make sure we attend church. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we'll make sure we drop money in the bucket when it passes. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we'll smile at our neighbors. But it says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we will try to persuade men. Some people would look at me and say, man, you're obsessed. And yes, I am. Because I realize that there are people dying and going to hell. 
And if I have the opportunity, if God's put me in the right place, my prayers can change things. My words can introduce Jesus into the conversation. I want to be a part of that. I could keep going. Let me, let me just share with you what we're doing. And uh, I'm, I'm so excited about what God is doing in this day and age because God is, is doing so many things and there are so many niches and everybody's got their own thing. But I'm so excited about the doors that God is opening for us. I realized a couple of years ago that if we can't get them to come to us and if you see trends, you recognize that people in our culture are less likely to come where we are. And so I began to say, how do we go where they are? And I recognized a couple things. I recognized they might not be loyal to a church, but they're loyal to their entertainment. I thought, you know, 97% of teenagers listen to the radio at least five times a week. I can't get 97% to come to a church. So rather than continue to beg them to come to a place that they might never come, why don't we use and leverage what they already are addicted to? So we began several years ago to, to leverage mainstream media Places like Star 98.7 and take pure gospel, pure messages of hope to that, to the people who listen to Star 98.7, which is the number two audience in LA. They play to 2.1 million people a week. I get excited about those numbers. I'm an evangelist. Man, you want to scare me, put me in front of 10 people. You want to get me excited, give me a hundred, that give me 2.1 million. I'll, I'll, whoa, I'll go crazy. I love that. We began to take these 30 and 60 second commercials there and then also places like MTV, VH1. Anybody ever heard of a show called Jersey Shore? If advertisers can influence what people are thinking when they're watching Jersey Shore, why shouldn't we as Christians influence the advertising as well? They'll sell us time just like those. Let me, let me, let me uh, break this down real quick. We do two things, and I want to show you one of the commercials. The first thing we do is we broadcast. We're going after youth and young adults right where they live. The second thing we're doing is we invite them at the end of the, conversa- at the end of the commercial to have a conversation or to chat with someone who cares. And that's where Doug comes in. That's where you could come in. We train you, you're sitting, you didn't have to go to Africa to do this, but you're sitting in your house, you've been trained, you're in your pajamas, you're comfy, it's on your schedule, all of a sudden your computer rings at you and somebody says, I have some questions about my faith. It's like street witnessing, the difference is they tap you on the shoulder and they begin the conversation. And it's been really exciting. Watch this commercial, let me show you what we're doing and then I'll I'll wind this down here. lady in New Mexico... She's driving down the road. She's not watching TV, but she's driving down the road. And as she's driving down the road, she's thinking about the last 10 days of her life. Because she's already decided she's going to end her life. Usually suicide is not impulsive. It's planned. And she'd already decided. She knew when and she knew where she was going to take her life. But as she's driving down the road, just entertaining herself, trying to drift off, trying to to just kind of forget about life, all of a sudden, on her favorite radio station, a commercial comes on that speaks into her car. She hadn't been to church ever in her life, but it speaks into her car and just says, there's a God in heaven who's thinking about you right now. He has plans for your life. He loves you. And it began her mental processes. I wonder if it's true. I wonder if He really does love me. I wonder if there really is a God in heaven who loves me. She got home. She got on her computer and she logged into the web address groundwire.net and as she logs in, there's a button there that says, would you like to chat? She clicks on it knowing that at any time if the conversation is uncomfortable, she can leave and you can't find her. But she finds a coach 
who's there and willing to have a conversation with her. The coach is just beaming inside because here's a broken person, somebody who's so wounded and scarred, somebody who thinks the church is irrelevant, but the message and the claims of Christ and what he did is so pertinent to her life. And the coach just begins to speak hope and value into her life. At the end of it, she said, You understand Jesus loved you so much that while you were a sinner, He died on a cross to pay the price for your sin. And not only does it help you afterwards, because it takes care of your eternal stuff, but He'll also be with you and walk with you through life. I said, Would you like to meet the, the man who's done all that for you? And she typed in her computer, Why wouldn't I? And 13 months, I love this, 13 months after she gave her life to Christ, she sent us a video testimony. She looked into the camera and she said, my name is Brittany. And 13 months ago, I was within days of ending my life. Knew when and I knew where. And I heard a commercial. It interrupted my life. Found a coach. And I found Jesus. And I'm different. 13 months afterwards. See, that's what it's all about. That's one of the tools that God is using. And I want to tell you, this is something that you could get involved with. If you're, I, I'm so excited about it. Right now, we just topped 31 million people a month right now that will either see or hear our commercials every month. I love it. You know, most ministry models are let's get them in one place for one day to hear one message and hope it sticks. Man, we're coming after them every day. Star 98.7, we're going to be there tonight. We'll be there tomorrow night. They're going to continue to hear the message. In L.A. alone, our goal is this, to reach 6.7 million people every week by the end of next year. Right now we're at 3.4 million, something like that. And so we're continuing to, to grow. Let me tell you three ways if you'd like to. First of all, please pray. Please pray. This is a, a spiritual battle. Whenever the, the devil doesn't, he gets excited. He gets a little angry when we start talking about the message that you're talking about today. Because he wants the church to remain isolated. When we get missional, he gets nervous. Do you agree with that? So we take the gospel and, and their spiritual attack. Atheists and agnostics are blogging about us saying we've got to shut them down. You've probably talked to some of them. They come and they attack and they, they try and infiltrate our coaching system. We have very strict rules about the way it operates because we've got to know who's there. But you can pray. Uh, a second way that you can get involved is if you'd like to be a coach. I'm telling you, some of you, it would scare you to death. But it would be so good for you. See, I believe with my whole heart that the Bible teaches that I, as a follower of Christ, that I have wisdom from on high. James chapter 1. That if I need wisdom, that I ask God and He gives it to me freely. The Bible also teaches that we can know the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The Bible teaches that we can have the mind of Christ. But you want to know most believers never put themselves in a position where they, where they have to rely on God's wisdom because we'd rather rely on our experience. This will put you in a place where you're typing, somebody comes on, they log in, and they're from a different part of the world, meaning they might be across the street, but they are from a different part of the world. And they're going to begin to pour out their heart, and you're going to see the Holy Spirit begin to, to speak through you. You're going to type, and you're going to step back and say, God was there. If you're interested in that, please come talk to me. Um, our, our greatest need right now is coaches. We averaged in 2010, we averaged 58,000 unique visitors to the website a month. 2010, 58,000. In 2011, we averaged 233,000. This year, we're averaging 309,000. As you can tell, we need some help. If you can give us two hours a week, it will be so thrilling and so exciting. We have people who've never led anybody to Christ, led 15 people to Christ in their first 
five weeks. And I'm telling you, when God uses you like that, you get excited. You might get a little addicted. That might be the problem. But there's a couple other ways to find out about what we're doing. Um, this blue sheet, I'm going to have some of these with me, not a ton. But this talks about what we're doing in Los Angeles. Let me, let me just tell you this. I, I get excited about this too. I love cost-effective ministry. Do you know how many people you can share Christ with for a dollar through media? For a dollar. MTV, that commercial, a dollar. Any guesses? In Los Angeles, each market's a little different. In Los Angeles, for every dollar that we spend in Los Angeles, 311 people will see a message of hope. So if you stopped on the way in and you got Starbucks, you could have kept that money and you could have just shared Jesus with 3,000 people. No condemnation. I'm just kidding. Um, but it's amazing. I mean, isn't that amazing? God's opened up great doors. If you're interested in just learning a little bit more of that blue sheet. And then one other thing, and Eric, I'll end with this. We're doing something I'm very excited about. We've never in Orange County before, we've never done a big event to kind of communicate who we are and to rally people who are passionate about reaching young people. We've never done a big event before. And in September, we're doing our first one. And if you'd like to come and learn more, I'd love to have you. It'll be a fun event. It'll be a dinner cruise on Newport Harbor. We'll take care of the cost. If that interests you, now I know some of you have been on too many of those, and by the, by the second hour, by the time it rolls around, you want to jump off the edge. But if you would like to come, we'd love to have you. And I have some of these that will tell you about that. But thank you so much. I, I'm so excited about when, when churches begin to say, let's look at what we're doing, not to make our Sunday morning better but to make the rest of our, of our week more fruitful for the kingdom of God. That excites me. So keep running and keep moving forward. I just wanted, wanted to say um, what a blessing it was when I met Sean about five, five years ago. Um, and I became a coach and uh, had no idea what I was getting myself into. But you know what? I didn't need to because the Holy Spirit took care of everything. And when these people come on to chat... I mean, they're cutting themselves. You got teenage kids that are cutting themselves. They're suicidal, some of them. They're heroin addicts. They're sex addicts. I have no training to deal with these people, but the Holy Spirit intercedes, and it gives you the right words to say at the right time. And nothing makes you feel better in this life than knowing that you help someone hmm. by speaking the truth in their life and giving them some hope. It's what Sean's doing is, what I was attracted to is, I always played sports. I like to play offense. I want to take the game to the other team. And that's what Sean's doing. He's giving hope to the hopeless. He's bringing life to the lifeless. And uh, he's making a difference. So it's a great ministry. I just, I haven't been coaching as, uh, as much recently just because of family stuff. But tonight I'm getting back on. And um, it's a great ministry. So I just say, anyone that's thinking about it but says i'm not qualified don't worry the holy spirit will give you the proper words at the proper time i just ask for his discernment every time i'm online and he hasn't let me down once so um thanks sean would you don't get that back why don't you hold on to that would you pray for sean and and the ministry that Groundwire is doing yeah dear lord we just lift up sean and Groundwire. um we know that you're looking for people in this day and age who are willing to speak the truth into this hurting world to shine some of your light into the darkness. And Sean is doing this in, a, in, in an effective way. And we just ask for your continued blessings financially, spiritually, relationship-wise, that you continue to lead him and guide this ministry forward because I believe he's got a heart 
that is totally aligned with what you would call us to do in this day and age. So we just ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Minutes, we're going to take offering and during the second song. And if you'd like to financially give towards Groundwire as well, just indicate that. Um, we, you have some of the envelopes there. You know, just indicate that on the envelope, and we'll make sure that Groundwire does get that. But again, Sean's going to be at the back table at the end of the service. If you'd like to talk to him, get more information. And then I would just ask for you, would you pray for us as we continue to wrestle with the invitation of God to, to be missional in our communities? You know, I just before we pray, I just had a, a challenge. And this is something that's resting on my heart, but I commission you this way too. How different would Southern California look if every person who lived here heard about the God in heaven who loves them every day? Do you think it would look different? Do you think skeptics might be... I mean, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing. Every time they hear, we win. The Bible says His Word doesn't return void. So let be a part of that. Be a part of sharing the love of Christ as God opens those doors and be faithful in prayer. Ask God to use you and to use this church and to use the body of Christ at large in this area to lift up the name of Jesus because we know that people will come to the kingdom if He's lifted up. If he lift, if he's lifted up, he'll draw them in unto him. So, Father, I come before you right now. God, I thank you for this church. God, I thank you for these pastors. I thank you for these believers. And God, I pray right now in the powerful name of Jesus, God, that you would stir something in our hearts. God, I believe with my whole heart that you're waiting for, for Christians to step out, to, to be aggressive. God, to open their mouth, to pray great prayers. And God, would you start in our hearts. God, would you let us recognize that we have a part to play, that you've commissioned us with the Great Commission. God, that you've called us to be ambassadors. And so, Father, I pray that this church would be faithful as they live as light and salt. And God, that they would be faithful as a lighthouse and that they would be faithful with their words. God, I pray that you would stir something, God, in every believer in this place, God, that you would, where it needs to happen, that you remove complacency, that you remove apathy, and God, that you would stir passion in us, stir passion for you and for the lost, God. I pray that just like Jesus, he had compassion and he was moved to action, God, that we would have compassion, not just for the hurting, not just for the lame, not just for the sickly, but God, even for the spiritually lost. And God, may we take your truth to them. God, may we see you fill our mouths. And God, may we see the Holy Spirit begin to transform lives. We thank you for the opportunity to be called your children, to be a part of your army. God, continue to use us. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.